Good morning. It's good to be with you all again. I'm sorry that Matt Morgan, Pastor Matt Morgan, is not still not feeling well, but recovering. But I'm happy to uh, to be here again with you. Uh, you can make your way in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We have gone through all the parables that are in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Luke has several parables in it uh, that are not in the other Gospels, so we're going to look at one of those parables today, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Uh, It's the parable that is known as the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. So I'm going to read our text this morning, and then we'll... Uh, Ask the Lord for help in understanding and applying His Word this morning. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said then, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, we... Thank you, first of all, for your word, your word, which is a source of truth that we may know things that could not be known any other way, but you have revealed them through your prophets throughout the ages, through most clearly through your son, Jesus Christ and his apostles or things that we could not ever see or know without You revealing them to us. So we thank You for Your Word. And I pray as we go through this parable, Lord, You would give us eyes to see eternal realities. Things that we can't see or taste or touch now, but things that we surely will one day see and taste and touch and experience. Lord, give us the eyes of faith. Give us Your Spirit. to Move us to believe, to cling to to Your Word, to receive Your Word meekly and humbly, and to cling to Your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this parable, uh, first again, we'll, we'll follow our usual mode here by looking at the context. What is the context of this parable? And we have to go all the way back to Luke chapter 15, kind of set the stage for what is going on with this parable. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, 
we find this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That is Jesus. Drawing near to hear Jesus. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we have this contrast. The sinners, the tax collectors are coming to willingly and joyfully hear Jesus' teaching, and the Pharisees are grumbling about it. And then, so Jesus then tells a series of three parables that all have the same theme. Something lost is being found. We have a lost sheep, we have a lost coin, and then we have the lost son, right? The prodigal son. And all of these parables point us to the fact that God is rejoicing that these sinners and tax collectors are hearing the gospel, are heeding Christ's words, repenting, being saved, and that's a stark contrast with how the Pharisees are are responding. They should be rejoicing, but yet they are grumbling. They are criticizing. So then, in chapter 16... Jesus now turns to his disciples and tells them a a parable and then some instruction about how they should be wise and um, shrewd is the word I think he uses here. Shrewd in their use of worldly wealth and possessions. They should use what God has given to them, not just to hoard, hoard them and make them rich, but to please God and to help others. And then we find in chapter 16, verse 14, that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. So the Pharisees are standing there, eavesdropping on Jesus' teaching, and they ridiculed him. They did not like Jesus' teaching on money, so they ridiculed. The the last verse, uh, verse 13, there in chapter 16, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees did not like that. They said, oh, that's silly. They ridiculed him. We see their idolatry. So then Jesus then, since they're on the fringe listening and sneering and making comments, Jesus then turns his attention to them. <laughs> right? Okay? I've, I've spoken to the crowds of God's grace and how He's receiving sinners joyfully who are repenting. You didn't like that. I taught my disciples they cannot serve both God and money. You didn't like that. Come here. Let me, let me talk to you now. Jesus now turns His attention to the Pharisees. So he said in verse 15, chapter 16, verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So here are these Pharisees, right? And perhaps most of us are familiar with Pharisees, but if you're not, they were a religious group, a very strict, serious religious group within Judaism. People would have looked at them and thought, well, they they are the righteous. They are the ones who are serious, must be right with God. But Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. And so he has some very scathing, serious, even graphic words to say to them, to awaken them. And the par- this parable of the rich man and Lazarus is one of those things. This is one of the most graphic descriptions of hell that we have in the Gospels. Jesus is going to aim those words at them. So that's the context of this parable. It's meant to 
awaken, to shock and awaken the perishing Pharisees, the hard-hearted, the blinded Pharisees. So this parable is also unique in Jesus' teaching. Uh, We've gone through a lot of parables lately, and you'll notice that in all of these parables, no one is named. Jesus doesn't give names to any of the characters, right? All the characters in, in the parables are a certain rich man. There was a certain man. There was a Samaritan. There was a Levite. There was a landowner. There were laborers in vineyards. Nobody gets a name in these parables. But here, in this parable, there's something unique. There are characters that are named. It's led some people to believe that perhaps Jesus is talking about an actual person. Perhaps Lazarus was an actual person. Um that Jesus knew. Perhaps this is an actual situation that, that happened. Um, or perhaps the reason for leaving the rich man unnamed and then giving the poor forgotten beggar a name is a way for Jesus to emphasize even more the flip-flop of the earthly versus the eternal perspective that Jesus is illustrating in this story. So, we're not sure. We're not, we can't, there's really no way of knowing if Lazarus was a real person or if he's a character that Jesus has invented, but given him this name, and Lazarus means God helps. So he might personify all of God's people, right? Whatever the case may be, it doesn't change the main point and the main purpose of this parable. And like we said, it's a parable to shock and awaken people. Right? Because here's our problem. For most of the people of this world, we live in blindness to eternal things. We care only about our peaceful and prosperous existence right now in this world. That's what 99% of everything that, that, that comes into our minds that we are concerned about, that we give our time and energies to, is the here and now. Right now, what's going on? Am, am I doing well now? Is my life peaceful? Is my life prosperous? We're prone to shunning the truth of God and the way of salvation so that we must be shocked and shaken awake or we will never seek the good of our soul, or our eternity. That's just how our human nature is. We care more about what's at hand than what is in the future. And so this parable is meant to shock. It is full of shocks. It has more shocks than a cattle fence. Everywhere you touch this parable, it's going to zap you. So we come, let's look at this parable now. Let's go to, again to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Right? Jesus is describing, using the words of his time that would describe the richest person. Right? Purple was a, a, a cloth that was hard to, a color that was hard to make, and so only the rich had purple, and not only did this man have, you know, one purple shirt or a tie, he had a whole wardrobe of purple. He had a whole wardrobe of the finest suits made, and he feasted sumptuously every day, not just on Thanksgiving, right? It was Thanksgiving every day. This was a five-star restaurant, private chef every day. Right? And uh, the Pharisees hearing this would have said, that sounds great. I want to be that guy. But then we find in verse 20, the next character. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Right? So Jesus gives us such a stark contrast between these two men. 
We notice in verse 20 that the poor man was laid. Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. Which means that he was probably paralyzed, an invalid. He couldn't move himself. He had to have people take him there. Lay him there. He is covered with sores. His existence is one of pain. It is one of suffering. It is one of hunger. He desired to just eat the food that fell off the table. Right? And if the rich man had kids, he probably had a lot of food on the floor. Cheerios, all sorts of things. He, this man, he wished that he could have had the same diet as the dogs. Right? Think about that. That's what the food that goes to the dogs is what falls off the table. Lazarus would have been happy with the diet of a dog. What a stark contrast. And then the dogs came and licked his sores. And commentators are kind of split about that sentence. Some think it was a good thing, it was a soothing thing that the dogs were giving the comfort that other human beings should have given to Lazarus. Others say, no, it would have just added to his pain and misery. Perhaps both of those things. I don't know. But what we see this picture of prosperity, the extremes, great prosperity on this world, comfort and ease, and then contrasted is utter suffering and destitution. And that, that is a, a real picture of this world. We don't all have the same existence. We don't all ha- experience the same things. There are those who have, are given more of the world than others. There are those who suffer greatly in this world. And if Jesus had paused in this parable and said, now tell me which of these you'd rather be, the rich man or Lazarus? We'd probably all say, I'd rather be the rich man. I would rather have riches, comfort, peace, health, than be like this man that everyone pities, that everyone walks by and says, man, I'm glad that's not me. But that's not the end of the parable. That's only the beginning. The poor, verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Let's pause there. So one, the poor man died. End of story. What happened? What happened to his body? It doesn't say, and he was buried. They just drug him and threw him into the garbage heap. No one mourned. Didn't have a service. Didn't have a memorial. Just tossed aside. But the rich man, oh, what a ceremony they had for him. What a burial they had for him. He probably had a, his private tomb carved in the stone. Nice words were said. Flowers were brought. People weeping and mourning. People saying, oh, what a wonderful man this guy was. All sorts of things. But then we continue on. Verse 23. The rich man died and was buried and in Hades, that is hell. In hell, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So now we have a very different situation. We have the poor man Lazarus is escorted by the angels to Abraham's side. That, that would be heaven, right? Abraham's side was what the Jews would have understood as this is paradise, this is heaven. This is a place of bliss and joy. The poor man is escorted by the angels into heaven with Father Abraham, the father of faith and the father of the faithful. But the rich man is, finds himself in hell, being tormented. What a very, very different existence we have now. What a very different situation we have now. So let's, let's continue on here. 
Verse 24, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. Father Abraham, the rich man was a Jew. The rich man had access to the Scriptures, was probably a member of the synagogue. The rich man had the Scriptures, the Word of God. He had the lineage of Abraham, yet he is not found at Abraham's side. He's found in Hades. The first first thing that this parable makes so clear is the reality of heaven and hell. There is an existence after death. And we cannot take for granted that people just believe and accept this biblical truth anymore. That it's the prevailing worldview of those around us today. We can't take that for granted. The watering down of biblical teaching by liberalism, the mixing of religions and philosophies from all over the globe have made the issue of life after death in people's minds about as certain and stable as a bowl of jello. We can't assume that people just believe this and think this. They're, today we've mixed everything together. Many have no idea what awaits them after death. Many have no idea if such a thing is even knowable. Right? Ask people on the street. Do you think we can even know? Can we know that there's a life after death? Can we know that there's a heaven and hell? And they'll say, no, I don't think we can. There's a, there was a lady, a Japanese woman that I met when we were there serving in Japan. And this issue of what would happen after she dies was heavy on her mind. It was something she thought about and was worried about and it consumed her. And in Japan, there was a famous woman, uh, kind of this teacher, guru person. She was known for her wisdom. She was very famous. You'd, you'd see her on television shows. She had conferences all over Japan. And people would come to her to learn her wisdom, right? To gain wisdom on these deep questions of life. And so this Japanese woman who's troubled about what's going to happen when she died, she decides she's going to go and see this, this guru. So she pays the money and goes to the conference and she's standing in line to ask her question, to walk up to the microphone and ask, what's going to happen when I die? What is, is there life after death? But there was another woman in front of her that asked the same question. It's a question that, that we think about as human beings. What is going to happen? Is, is this all that there is? When I die, what, what will be? Will there be anything? So the woman asked the same question. Sensei, what is after death? What will happen to me when I die? And the guru's answer was, I don't know. I've never died. No kidding, that was her answer. The woman, this Japanese woman who's trying to seek answers, her heart sank. The guru had no answers, no help. She went to the wisest of the world and she found no help in this matter. And the same is true for the rest of the world. We can turn to so many different sources. They can't help us, right? Science can't help us on this issue. We cannot see past death or this physical universe, not with a telescope, not with a microscope. We can't send a probe to the other side of the grave to investigate spiritual realities and then come back and tell us what it's going to be like. That's not possible. So how can we know anything for certain? How can we know anything about existence after death with any certainty? Well, we can know because the God who made both body and soul, the God who rules life and death, has made it known to us in the Scriptures. 
The Scriptures are the only reliable and unerring source of information about eternal spiritual realities. I I think sometimes as Christians we take this for granted. The, The Scriptures are the revelation of God. God saying, this is how it is, this is how it's going to be. The, the one who knows all things, who cannot lie, who cannot err, has told us of things we cannot know any other way. We can't know things that the Bible reveals about God, about eternity, about salvation, about our own condition. You can't know these things any other way than God revealing them to us. And He has in the Scriptures. And so this Japanese, not to leave you hanging on that story, this Japanese woman who shared this story with me told me that she eventually went to a Bible-teaching church. She began to read the Bible, and she found that all of her answers, or all of her questions, were answered right here, plainly in Scripture. We don't understand how, how we, we take these things for granted. If we have a biblical worldview, we take for granted when the, when the world is searching and probing in the darkness and can't find answers for anything, it's all right here, plainly, clearly taught in the Scriptures. So the Scriptures teach us life after death. There is an existence after death. Jesus is teaching this in this parable. Death is not the extinction of our existence, but the soul continues on in a conscious existence, awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. Jesus also plainly teaches in this parable that there are only two conditions in which the soul will find itself after death. One is a condition of blessedness and joy. The other is of torment, punishment, or agony. Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, as some of your translations probably say, that was the place the Jews understood as heaven, paradise, an eternal place of blessedness living as God's children in His presence forever. Hades would have been what the Jews understood as hell, a place of punishment for those who have broken God's law and who have lived at enmity with Him. These are the two conditions after death. There's not a third option. There's not a neutral place. There's heaven or there is hell. And we see in this parable that these two existences are immediate after death. After death, the angels carried Lazarus. And right after death, the rich man finds himself in Hades. They are immediate. And also we see that they are unalterable. Unalterable. As, as Abraham says in this parable, there's a chasm fixed, right? Verse 26 Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Hell is not temporary. It's not. There is no bettering yourself in hell and then passing on into heaven. It is is fixed. It is eternal. These are terrifying realities. Terrifying truths. But they are what the Scriptures unashamedly, unapologetically teach. So Jesus shows us in this parable these realities, invisible realities. What will eternity be? What will happen after we die? Jesus lays it out plainly. And and the Pharisees knew this. He, He wasn't saying anything the Pharisees didn't know already or hadn't figured out. But here's the shocking thing, is the second part of this parable is that our condition in this life does not necessarily reflect our condition in the next life. Look at how different these two conditions are. The rich man and Lazarus in this life and in eternity are in very two extremely different conditions. 
I think this is the most shocking part of the parable that Jesus' audience, and especially the Pharisees, would have been this extreme flip-flop of the earthly condition versus the eternal condition of the rich man and Lazarus. It is often the case today, just as it was back then, that we often see earthly prosperity as a sign of God's approval and earthly calamity or suffering as a sign of God's displeasure. And it's very interesting that we read John 9 because that's the place I was going to go. We just read John 9 this morning and what did, the, what did the disciples assume about the man born blind? Must have done something wrong. Right? Either the parents sinned or he sinned. Which one? I mean, we just know it's those. We figured, we've narrowed it down to two options. Either his parents really ticked God off or he did. So which one is it, Jesus? And Jesus says you're, both options are wrong. Both wrong. And we see Job's, Job and his friends also in the book of Job have the same assumption. Right? When, when Job is prospering, it must be in God's favor. But when, when calamity hits, one after the other, after the other, after the other, oh, Job, you messed up. You, have, you must have sinned. I mean, it's obvious. God doesn't treat his children this way. No. Jesus uses these extreme examples of earthly conditions and then he flips them around not to glorify or vilify riches or poverty. Right? We have, we have to be careful of that. Don't, don't interpret the parable this way. Well, okay, all rich people are going to hell and all poor people are automatically going to heaven. That's not what Jesus is teaching in this parable. He's making the point that our earthly condition is not an indication of our present standing with God, nor of what our final condition will be. Now again, he's, he's directing, he's aiming this parable at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were convinced by their wealth, by their prestige, by their outward religiosity, that they were in right standing with God and that God smiled upon them and would receive them into heaven. They, they thought this was evidence, right? My life is going good. I have a good position, good prestige. People have a good opinion of me. God is making my life go smoothly. It must mean that I'm good with God. I'm right with God. I'm pleasing God. Many people today use similar reasoning. They say things like, life is good. Things are going my way. I have a good job. I have a nice house. I have the things of this world. I, I can go on Facebook and write hashtag blessed on my profile picture. God must be pleased with me. It, that, I mean, it's, the evidence is all around me. No matter that I ignore His Word, no matter that I live as I please, no matter that I have no fellowship with God's church, that I indulge in all the sins accepted by society, everyone does that. I'm sure that if there is a place like heaven, God will let me in. But my friend, this is a false hope. This is a false hope. It's a balloon that will pop at death and drop that person into the pit of hell. It cannot save. So how can we know our condition with God? How can you know? How can we know where we will spend eternity? We cannot turn to our circumstances to judge this. We cannot turn to our own opinions or the opinions of the rich and the famous today. Or we cannot turn to our own deceitful hearts and say, well, my heart tells me that I'm a good person. My heart tells me that I'm a, a decent human being. These are false guides. A broken compass that cannot be relied upon. The Scriptures are the only reliable 
unerring source to discern our present condition and our eternal state. Again, it brings us back to the Scriptures. It's only through the Scriptures that we know eternal realities, what will happen after death, and it's only through the Scriptures that we can rightly know and judge our condition with God, our relationship with Him. What will our eternal condition be? So the Bible teaches us that our natural condition, the condition that we are all born into, is one of sin and rebellion against God. This is the Bible's verdict and diagnosis of us. We are under God's condemnation, deserving of hell. But this sinful condition also makes us spiritually blind and proud. So we don't think we're sinful. And we are ready to argue and deny any evidence to the contrary. And we see this happening in in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Take a detour over there quickly. John chapter 8. Verse 31. This Again, ironically, this happens obviously right before John chapter 9, but what we just read this morning, opening the eyes of the blind man. So, John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They don't see their bondage. They don't see their chains or feel their chains. Sin has made them blind to their sinfulness, to their condition before God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What was their slavery? What were their chains? It was sin. Again, most of you know this story. What, What happens? I mean, the Jews are ready to go to the mat with Jesus. We are not slaves to sin. We're children of Abraham. We are righteous. We're, we're gonna, when we die, we'll be at Abraham's side. I mean, they're, they're ready to kill him by the end of this conversation. This is, this is how sinful yet blind we are. All of us. All of us. And so it is the Scriptures... That must expose and show us what our present condition is. If you are a human being on planet earth, you were born a sinner. You were born a lawbreaker, an enemy of God. And it may, it may just show a little bit of fruit at first. Most of that fruit might be under the ground and you don't see it, but it is there. It is there. And it makes us worthy of hell. This is the thing about Christian truth. It may be shocking. You may read through your Old Testament. Uh, my son brought up a, a thing the other day about he was reading the, um, them worshiping the, the golden calf. And he didn't realize that Moses had commanded the Levites, take up your sword and kill all those who were worshiping that idol. And it was shocking. I, he said, I didn't realize that That happened. There are things in the Scripture that shock us. And it's meant to. To show us the seriousness of our sin. This is what what sin really deserves. You see, we, we don't understand that. Because we are sinners living in a fallen world, blinded to sin, blinded to the glory of God, things like hell, unending torment for sin, seem unreasonable to us. But if only our, our eyes would be opened, if we would see the holiness of God, if we would see the worth of God, and that, what our sin says about the worth of God, how our sin is an insult to the worth of God, how our sin is treachery against God, we would, we would say, this is right. 
this is just. This is fair. I deserve to go here. I deserve to be thrown in with the rich man into unending torment. Hell is deserving. So we must, we can't rely upon our own senses. We can't rely upon what the world says to know what our condition is. We have to go to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures show everyone guilty before God. This is God's diagnosis of you from His perfect Word. If you are without Christ, no matter how hashtag blessed you may feel, or how unbelievable this diagnosis may feel in your heart of hearts, it is God's honest truth. And salvation begins by accepting and receiving God's verdict against you. So how can you know if your relationship to God is right? How can you know if in fact you are going to heaven? Well, it begins with what we just said, receiving God's guilty verdict. You're here this morning and say, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's me. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel like a terrible sinner. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. You may know that you are lost. Salvation begins when we humble ourselves and receive God's guilty verdict and say, yes, that is me. I am guilty. We agree with God's diagnosis. We are sinners. We've broken God's law countless times Deserving of hell. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, that His people are those, those whom He is saving, are those who hear the Word of God and do it. They receive, they accept what the Scripture says, even when those Scriptures prove them to be sinners. Their hearts are broken over this condition, and they mourn over their own sin. They receive God's Word as true. Those whom God is saving, those whom Christ is redeeming, are those who receive His Word as true, who humble themselves and are broken over their personal sin, trusting in the promises of God's mercy in the work of Jesus Christ, not in personal works or merits. The person whom God is saving is one who has a new submission and obedience to God's law and a love for God and neighbor. That is the fruit of saving faith. Relying on Christ. Trusting in Him. Looking to the mercy of God, not our own works. So we see this. that We cannot judge our own, our condition with God by how circumstances are going in our life. Go back to the parable here, Luke chapter 16. Now there's a conversation now that takes place between the rich man and Abraham. He's already asked for relief, just a drop of water. No, that cannot happen. Now he has another request, verse 27. So Luke 16, verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So the rich man is asking for a miracle. (laughs) Raise Lazarus from the dead and send him back to warn my five brothers so they will repent and not come to this hell. And Abraham says, no, that's not possible. That cannot happen. Verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Right, that was a way of designating the Old Testament. They have the Scriptures. Let them hear the Scriptures. And, and the rich man replies, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent if they see a miracle, if they see something extraordinary, then not, not, the, not the, the reading of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they attend the synagogue, but they need something more. They need something extraordinary, something miraculous. Abraham says, no, not happening. 
If they do not, verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, scriptures, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In this last part of the parable, we see that the scriptures are God's ordinary means of salvation. The scriptures are the primary means that God uses to save sinners. If people will not heed the voice of God in His Word, then they will not be moved by supernatural or extraordinary means. Jesus' words here at the end in Abraham's mouth are full of irony because Jesus Himself will rise from the dead. And there's another Lazarus that Jesus is going to raise from the dead. They, They witnessed, the Pharisees witnessed miracles. We see how closely they're sticking to Jesus and shadowing Him. Surely they witnessed things that He did. Experienced it. Maybe ate the bread that He miraculously multiplied. Saw healing. So John chapter 9 that we just read. Witnessed a man born blind, now eyes open. They witnessed miracles. It didn't save them. It didn't regenerate them. The Scripture is God's means of saving. If they will not hear the Scriptures, if they will not believe the Gospel, neither neither will they be convinced by signs and wonders and miracles. Many of you know I came from a charismatic background and you know that's what we thought, that's what we believed as charismatic, right? That's why we need the supernatural, right? So that people will believe. Go out and make somebody's leg the right length and do all sorts of things, and then they'll believe. Why we need? That's what we need. No. If they will not listen to the plain truth of God's word, if they will not listen to the scriptures, the law, the gospel, they will not be saved. The scriptures is God's means that He uses to save sinners. A couple applications. If here this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sin and bowed your knee to Christ, if you're waiting for some special sign, some extraordinary event to believe in Jesus Christ, to to know that all this Scripture stuff is true, then you will wait forever and you will perish in your sins. God is calling to you now through His Word, through the truth of His Scriptures, through the work of His Spirit, He is calling you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God calls you to believe what He says. That has been the issue from the very beginning. Did God really say? Satan said. Believing what God says. Believe that there is a real hell, a real heaven, that you are a sinner deserving of hell, or that Jesus Christ came to bear your sin, that he came to die on the cross on your behalf, that he came rising from the dead to raise you up from death. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Stop living as if this world was all that there is. As if this world was the most important thing. Open your eyes to invisible realities, to an eternal state. A condition that once you are in, you cannot be altered or relieved forever. Christian, those who have heard and received the Word of God, who believe in realities you cannot see, what does this parable say to you? Well, first this parable says, Heaven is for real. Don't run out and buy the book. You don't need a book about someone else's out-of-body experience to know that this is true. You have the testimony of God. You have the testimony of God that there is a paradise waiting for you. In this parable, we see both the hell that you deserve, but that Christ has saved you from, and the heaven that Christ has won for you. When you draw your fleeting breath, 
and your eyelids close in death, you will be received into the bosom of Christ, the paradise of God. Secondly, Christian, this parable teaches you don't be troubled about your condition here. Don't judge God's smile upon you by your outward circumstances. But cling to the promises and comforts of the Gospel. We can do that so often. We can can look at our circumstances and judge, God's happy with me today because there's no traffic. I must have ticked God off because I got a flat tire. Don't don't judge your Christian life that way. We must grow up from these things. We must look to the Word. This is what the Scripture says. Christ has suffered in my place. I've passed from death to life. This is where I stand. No matter if I get a flat tire, no matter if I'm in the condition of Lazarus in the lowest, painful, most suffering place in this world, if I have Christ, I have all things. If I have Christ, I have the smile of God. No matter if the clouds may block that smile from view. Don't be troubled about your condition here. Remember that the bitter must come before the sweet. And that the surpassing sweetness of heaven will cause the pangs of this life to melt away. Lastly, Christian, trust in the power of the Word to do its work, especially in evangelism. Trust in the power of God's Word to do its work. You don't need gimmicks. You don't need manipulation. You don't need signs and wonders to convince people of the truth. You just need the plain truth of the Gospel. The law to convict of sin and the Gospel to show the way of salvation. The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Trust in that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, again, we see how we need Your Word. Lord, we can't see all of reality. We can only see what's right in front of our nose, and even that we get wrong. But Your Word is an infallible guide. It is a light in the darkness. Lord, help us not to judge You by a feeble sense, but to look to Your Word to know our condition based on Your Word and not on our own feelings. And Lord, help us to trust in the power of Your Word, both as it works within us and as it works upon the hearts of sinners. That Your Word goes forth and accomplishes what You purpose for it to do. We put our trust in that this morning. We cling to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.